Good to be back with everybody today and jumping back into our series on spiritual gifts. And we're calling it Gifted for Growth because that is why God has given Christians gifts. He's given us abilities to be used uh, for the edification of the church. We know this is important. We know there's a lot of questions that surround these gifts and um, whether, you know, which gifts exist today. Are there miracles, healings, tongues? Um, and then how do I know what gifts I have? And how do I pursue those in the, in the life of the body? So crucial that we nail some of that down. And, um, and that's what we've been doing over these last, I guess this is week six on our, our gift series. So if just by way of review, uh, we're thinking through spiritual gifts, we defined it and we looked at a spiritual gift is a specific God-given ability to build up the church. So it's an ability that we have, or maybe abilities, that are given by God. Uh, he connects them. The New Testament connects spiritual gifts with the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit's given us these things. And their goal, the aim of the spiritual gift, over and over it said, is to build up the body. They're not for us, even though we definitely get joy as we use them. Um, they're for the building up of the, of the body. So we've looked at all that. And... We looked at a bunch of principles on spiritual gifts, kind of an overarching view, and then we, we, we jumped into the individual gifts, and we started taking these one by one. Um, we'll probably go a little bit faster in the back half of the semester um, as we get to the more normative gifts, but uh, these were important to try to nail down these, what some call these foundational gifts or miraculous gifts, and as we've seen, uh, that's kind of where we started. We looked at apostleship, then we moved on to prophecy. Uh, then we looked at tongues, and uh, we're just, we're just going to keep rolling. We're going to look at miracles and um, healing today, all right? Try to, <laughs> try to cover that one. Um, and so you know that there's, that there's a debate here. There's two views, which are con- continuationists, and they would say that some of these miraculous gifts, or all these miraculous gifts, in one form or another, continue today. And then there's cessationists, which is where we're at as a church on the whole, um, there's a lot of positions within cessationism, but on the whole, we're all cessationists, and it says that these miraculous gifts have, have ceased today. So, but my, my process, hopefully, that you've seen this throughout, is not just to start with a position and then try to argue that position. We want to start with the biblical data and look, you know, Old, Old Testament, New Testament, and then to today, and kind of think through the biblical data and draw our, as, as many conclusions as we can from that data and not necessarily from our system. All right, so today we're going to be looking at the gifts of healing and miracles. So we're going to combine those two, because you can really think of healing as sort of a subset of the miraculous, right? In the New Testament, uh, very clearly, when anybody's healed, it's not like a medicinal healing. It's a divine, miraculous event where it's completely restorative, uh, instantaneous. There's only one example where it's not, and that was for a purpose. It was when Jesus healed the blind man, and then he kind of healed him halfway, and he saw things moving around like trees, and then he healed him again, and it completely clarified his vision. And there was a theological point to that. That's why he did it that way. But on the whole, these healings were instantaneous, um, miraculous, so they are. They, we should treat them together. Um, but miracles aren't only talking about healings. They're also talking about things like when Jesus multiplied bread, uh, he walked on water. He did many mighty deeds um, that were uh, different than what you would expect. It kind of defied the laws of nature. 
going to grab a cup of water because I'm, I'm going to lose my voice if I don't. So just don't mind me. Um, the, these gifts of healing and miracles, they go together. Okay, That's important. And we'll see them show up together as we work through some of this material. And it's important that we dial in here because, obviously, there's a lot going on today in the name of faith healing and the miraculous and a number of things. So hopefully what we'll do is we work through the biblical data. I'll give you categories, and then you'll be able to evaluate that. I'll, I'll point things out along the way as we go. But you'll be able to evaluate kind of what we see on the main in some of these faith healing kind of movements, which I think are very dangerous. Okay? So we're going to do some Q&A here. Ask and answer five questions. Well, here's where it is, actually, before we do that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is really the only place we see these spoken of as gifts for the church. Okay? So 1 Corinthians 12 is, is where this is at, and it comes up three different times in this chapter, but I, I just gave you one example here uh, just as we, as we head in. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets. We've talked about those. We haven't talked about teaching yet. Third teachers. Then, he says, miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. So, we have talked about those various kinds of tongues. So again, you see, miracles, gifts of healing are listed side by side there, and the other several places in 1 Corinthians, they're, they're always listed side by side. So that's where you see that these are gifts given to the church for the church's edification. So let's start by asking our, our first question here about what do we learn about healing, miracles, some of these things in, in and from the Old Testament. Let's start there and kind of build, build our theology from the ground up. What do we learn about these gifts in the Old Testament? Now again, I'll say this every week. But in case you're new, this is going to be a lot of data. Um, and if you want my notes, I will gladly send them to you in an email. So if you feel like you're having a hard time keeping up, because I don't know, there's like probably 50 slides. So just, we're going to go fast. Shouldn't have told you that. Okay? We're going to go fast. Um, but just, just kind of know that that's available to you. All right. So what do we learn about them in the Old Testament? Obviously, the need arises for healing after the fall. I think it's important we start here. The need for healing arises after the fall, after human, humanity is plunged into sin, death, sin, decay, and death, the dominion of Satan. In Genesis 3, God subjected this creation to a curse because of Adam and Eve's sin. Satan gained a foothold, we learn that later, but he gained a foothold over humanity, which we find lets in all kinds of demonic oppression and possession and a number of those things on human beings. Sin and sickness become the norm. Death was the inevitable result of the fall. So if anything's going to change for humans, the curse has to be reversed. The creation has to be restored, and it's going to have to come from God himself. So any kind of miraculous healing is going to have to occur to restore humans from this condition that we are in. All right, so that said, it starts at the fall, you know, our need, our need for some of these things. 
But it's worth noting that what we typically think of as this sort of miraculous activity, things like miracles and healings, they're actually quite rare in the Old Testament. It's quite rare. Sometimes we're tempted to think of the Old Testament as kind of miraculous activities kind of regularly happening or happening often, but that's just not the case. They do, it does happen throughout the Old Testament, but they cluster around two individuals. They cluster around Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest prophets. They peak around these times of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, and then again in the ministry of Elijah and then his protege, Elisha. So with Moses, again and again, the text says in, in, in the Exodus account that God performed signs and wonders. So if you want to jot that phrase down, signs and wonders through Moses. It's going to come up again in significant points. He performed these signs and wonders through Moses, both in Egypt and in the wilderness wanderings. And in the Exodus, God demonstrated to Pharaoh that Israel was his firstborn son and that he would be feared by all the nations. Then in the wilderness, he demonstrated to Israel that he was their God and that Moses was his servant. You know, they were often complaining about him. um, And he was authenticating Moses often in the wilderness. And then many years later, you get this guy, Elijah. And it was during this ministry of the prophet Elijah, miracles peaked again. It's not that they didn't happen between these two guys. They they did, you know, or before. Abraham prayed for Abimelech, and Abimelech was healed. That was the only time that ever happened, you know, in, in the narrative that we have. But these things peak with regularity with these two, um, these two individuals and around these, these two ministries. Um, but you might say, well, what about Elisha? He performed a lot of miracles too, didn't he? And yes, he did. But the text is really explicit that he did those miracles in the spirit of Elijah, his mentor. So again, these gifts are kind of associated, or these, these, this miraculous activity is associated with these two, these two men. So they, this significance should be observed as we work through the Old Testament, because these two men are going to show up again in the New Testament. And they're going to show up together. And they're going to show up with Jesus on a mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. And Jesus, and he, that's, he's also going to be described as performing signs and wonders. He's also going to be described as leading out a new exodus for God's people. And so he's the prophet like Moses, who's going to lead God's people out in a second exodus. But more on that in a minute. I just want you to see, they cluster around these two individuals. Now, it's also worth noting that these mighty works, these miracles, can be falsely performed in the Old Testament. It doesn't, in other words, it doesn't necessarily authenticate, especially if that prophet or dreamer of dreams or whatever he is, is going against God's written revelation. See this really clearly over in Deuteronomy 13. We've already looked at that one other time in this series. I'll give you a chance to finish writing that. Miracles can be falsely performed. Check out Deuteronomy 13. I got it on the screen. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, okay, so he performs a miracle, in other words. Then he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, 
let us serve them. That's violating the Torah. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So if somebody, again, is performing miracles, yet they're violating the written revelation of God, he's a false prophet, a, false, a dreamer of dreams that's not to be listened to. He goes on to say that in Deuteronomy 13 for the nation of Israel. And then you think also of Pharaoh's magicians. You know, they could keep up with Moses to a certain degree, um, but then he outpaced them. The Lord outpaced these magicians to show his superiority over the dark arts. But this is an important category of this um, false performance of miracles, these false signs and wonders, uh, because they're going to be developed, this category is going to be developed by Christ and by the apostles' teaching. Um, for these false signs and wonders. And they're going to peak again at the end of this age. Alright, so, finally, we learn in the Old Testament that miracles are predicted to occur with the coming of the Messiah. Or I said here, they signal the coming of Messiah. And they kind of signal, this is together, the outpouring of the Spirit. So Messiah would come and then he would pour out, he would affect God's new covenant, dying for the people, and then he would pour out his spirit to them, and it would ultimately lead to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm right now, I have all these texts from Isaiah flooding in my mind as I say that. Um, but I only gave you a few here. Isaiah 42 and then Joel 2. So, if you think about miracles and, and healings and those kinds of things and how they signal the Messiah... This makes sense. It makes sense. Because since the fall, we've been looking for an offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15, we've been looking for an offspring of the woman who would reverse the curse, who would crush Satan's head. And then again, we've been looking for someone from Abraham's family, Genesis 12, who would cause all the nations to be blessed. And that blessing language means a reversal of the curse. Reversal of those things that we've been afflicted by since Genesis 3. We've been waiting for someone from David's line, 2 Samuel 7, who will reign on the throne forever. And Isaiah alerts us that this son is coming, and one of the signs of his coming will be a reversal of the curse. Notice here, he says, Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord, I've called you, that's singular, I've called you, this is the servant, the Messiah, I've called you in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So clearly, Isaiah alerts us that this coming one, this son, will be signaled by these events, these miracles, like the opening of the eyes that are blind, and will reverse the curse. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, he says here, and again. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, Isaiah 35. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Side note. Going off script. Okay, careful. The way Isaiah works is like surround sound. Okay? It's like if we're in this room and there's speakers all around this room, 
you might hear a couple chapters from the one speaker, another chapter, a couple chapters from the next speaker, another chapter, a couple chapters from the next speaker. And then when you step back from Isaiah and you put all those speakers together, you've got the symphony, you've got surround sound coming to you about what God's going to do through his Messiah. So the fact that he, back over here in Isaiah 42, associates these things with the coming one, with the servant, but then earlier it's with the coming of the Lord. Just verses earlier than this, it says the Lord's going to come to you and recompense, and then he's going to do these things. These are going to be the sign that he's come. So again, it, it, Isaiah, when you, read, when you read it as a whole, you get this beautiful picture of what God's going to do when he comes. Um, that's just for free. Okay. And then Isaiah also says that all this is going to culminate in a new heavens, a brand new heavens and a brand new earth, Isaiah 65. In 66. So the point here is that miracles signal the coming of the Messiah. They signal that the reverse is going to be undone, or that the curse is going to be reversed, and the new heavens and the new earth are going to, at least eventually, come. So not only will miracles signal the Messiah, but they will also signal the outpouring of God's own spirit. We've already seen this. We've seen this from Joel 2. He says, it shall come to pass after, this is verse 28, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He goes on to talk about that, how they're going to be dream dreams and see visions and there's going to be prophecy. We talked about all that last couple weeks back. Then he says, he keeps going, verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. So in other words, miracles, it's another word for miracles, will happen um, at this time of the outpouring of God's spirit. Miracles then are going to be the signal that this new king and kingdom are finally here. So, that leads us to our second question. What do we learn about miracles and healings, these gifts, in the New Testament, or particularly in the Gospels? Let's just narrow our focus down. Well, we learn that Jesus regularly performed them, and he performed a lot of them, a wide variety staggering amount of healings and miracles. Like so many that his disciples, particularly John, kind of like sits us down and and basically says, look, if there were books, like I've only written like a sliver, a fraction of what he did. If, if, If someone were trying to catalog everything he did, talking about these Miracles and healings and things. The world could not contain the books that would be written. Look at this. This is from John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That's John talking about that, the author. Then he goes on in the last chapter. It's how he ends his work. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Whoa. So Jesus regularly performed a wide variety of these, of these signs. He healed lepers. He caused the lame to walk. He healed the blind. He healed epilepsy. He healed hemorrhages. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. And he did these kind of good deeds constantly. Constantly. Observed by all and in unprecedented ways. All right? Next, Jesus' miracles and healings were undeniably miraculous and complete. In other words, you couldn't, you couldn't explain them away. 
They weren't dubious at all. <laughs> they were complete. Even his enemies were like, oh, I can't deny it, you know. Uh, We've got to figure out something else to stick on him because it's clear what he's doing. There was no mistaking whether or not a healing had actually occurred. Everybody knew it. The healings were completely regenerative and instantaneous. He wasn't giving anybody a little tincture saying, go home and take this. There weren't any partial healings. No questions about their legitimacy ever. They weren't medicinal healings. There weren't essential oils. Okay? People didn't get better over time. They were instantly healed. Everyone was shocked, even the enemies. Look at this. Mark 7. It's talking about all the people. They were all astonished. All the people were astonished beyond measure. This is after he performed a, a healing. He said, saying, look at, look at this. Talked about the quality of his healings. He has done all things well. I love that. Meaning, he brought this guy back to perfect health. He's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I mean, these people were stunned at the power, the identifiable, undeniable power of Jesus. But why did he perform these these miracles? Why did he perform them? Well, they, they helped to identify him as the Messiah, as we would expect. Because that's what the prophets said would happen. They kind of tagged Jesus of Nazareth as the one, the coming one. It's this man um, that is in fulfillment of those things that the prophets laid out. A few few texts here, Luke 4. (laughs) how, How much more obvious can you get? Jesus comes to Nazareth. He goes to synagogue. They ask, him to, they ask him to speak. He grabs Isaiah, unrolls the scroll. <laughs> and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. And this is kind of a, a compilation of different texts. But he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And here's a text we looked at from, I think, 42. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says he rolls the scroll back up, sits down, you know, basically says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Sits down. (laughs) So, pretty clear. Uh, This clearly is the overwhelming purpose of his, the recovery of sight to the blind. Uh, One more text to throw on you from Luke. This is Luke 7. John the Baptist is in prison, and he's beginning to have some doubts, Okay. Like, is Jesus actually the coming one, meaning the Messiah? So he calls his disciples to him. He sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? That's a messianic title. Are you the Messiah? Or shall we look for another? And then verse 21, skip, skip the verse here, so you could fit it all on the screen. <laughs> Notice what Luke does. Luke's commentary. Okay, so they sent him to ask, Are you the Messiah? Commentary. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Now, editorial over. Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, again, pretty undeniable what the signs are pointing to 
They are pointing to Jesus' messianic status. They testify that he's the messianic king that Isaiah and others predicted. So these mighty deeds, these healings and resurrections, they all point toward the renewal of all creation like a giant neon sign, and they are authenticating the king of the new creation, Jesus himself. But notice that they that's not all they did. Okay, Jesus, they also expressed his compassion. They function to identify him, but, but there's a heart that this, that this reveals. They express Jesus' compassion for the afflicted. Look at this text in Matthew 14. And this is multiple places, not just here. But he says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And notice what he does next. He healed their sick. Over and over, the gospel writers connect his compassion with his healing ministry, his feeding of the 5,000. There's a number of places where the heart of Christ is on display as he he gives these little indicators that the the curse is being reversed. And sometimes, I'm pointing this out because sometimes we might make it sound like miracles only authenticate Jesus as Messiah. But it's clear that he healed people precisely because he was moved by compassion. As the true shepherd, he was grieved to see people without a shepherd, without a messianic king to guide them, without a messianic king to heal their diseases. In their sin, they were left open to death, decay, and demons. Jesus' compassion then moved him to alleviate their suffering and to do it in the most ultimate way, which was by dying for them. By his wounds, he says, we are healed, Isaiah 53, on the cross. So Jesus expressed his compassion. Something else we learn in the New Test in the Gospels is that Jesus warns of false miraculous activity. He warns of false miraculous activity that will arise after him. He says this in Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. <laughs> Not just like I love the modifier. Signs and wonders. You're like, well, pretty spectacular. But they're great signs and wonders. Um, so the most uncommon of the uncommon. Um, and so the goal is to lead people astray. They'll be very powerful, very persuasive. And he's told us that beforehand, he says in verse 25. Again, just picking up that theme we saw in the Old Testament, continues it forward. And finally, it becomes clear that Jesus intends to share this authority with others. Um, in particular, the 12 and this group called the 72. The twelve apostles, the ones whom he chose and named apostles. And then even to a wider group, the 72, at least during this this season of his ministry. So I don't think I have these on the screen. Nope. Um, You can look at those later, but after these groups had traveled around with Jesus, he gave them the authority to heal, to cast out demons, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And if you look at those texts carefully, it becomes very clear that their healing ministry and their miracle ministry ultimately is to authenticate that the message of the kingdom is here. This good news is present. The kingdom is dawning to Israel. All right, so let's keep moving here and ask our third question. What do we learn about these things in the rest of the New Testament? 
What do we learn about these gifts, these miracles and healings in the rest of, of the New Testament scriptures? Well, we learn that Jesus continues to regularly perform miracles through his apostles. Acts is very clear about this. Um, he keeps on performing miracles even after his ascension because he sends the Spirit on his church, his own Spirit. It's connected to the ascension of Jesus and, and he continues to do these mighty deeds. I listed a bunch of texts there um, that show that the apostles and are, are doing these works and Paul included Acts 19 there. But let me show you one that it shows that that Jesus is the one still doing these things. Acts 4. And now, Lord, this is a prayer of those original disciples in Jerusalem. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you, Lord, that's Jesus, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, the point here is that Jesus is continuing to do these through the apostles, and Acts has already told us that these apostles are the ones that are performing these. In Acts 2 and 5.12, and then Paul and Barnabas in 19. But ultimately, God's the one that's doing them through these men. And then, so... Let me just make a comment on that, actually, before we, before we get here. Um, this implies that the miracles are of the same quality, right? If Christ is still doing them, so, and that's exactly what you see in Acts. They're undeniable. The enemies of the gospel, the Jews, they can't deny that miraculous signs are occurring. Um, they're not able to refute. There's no, like, hey, go take this medicine, You'll get healed. It is instantaneous, regenerative healings that are taking place, and sometimes wildly so. Like a handkerchief touches Paul, and they take that hanky, and they go, and it it touches somebody else, and they get healed. I mean, we're talking serious regenerative power flowing from Christ to these these servants. Um, And I point that out because a lot of the stuff happening today is kind of quite dubious. (laughs) And it gets blamed on the fact that people didn't have enough faith. And that's that's a mistake. Alright. Next thing we see is miracles continue to authenticate the apostles and the gospel message as it spreads. Miracles continue to authenticate the, the apostles and the gospel message as it spreads. Again, you could argue that is the primary purpose of these gifts in Acts. Is it's over and over, Luke repeats to us that it's authenticating that God is bearing witness through signs and wonders of, of the authenticity of the gospel, the authority of these messengers, that they are truly the ones. And that's important, right? Because you've got Judaism in the background. Judaism saying we're the way, the, tr- the truth and the light. And so the fact of God of the Old Testament is actually testifying to these other men, that they're actually the way because of their Messiah. So very, very important that this gets, that this gets testified to. But they continue to spread. Here's just one example of this. Um, 
This is not in Acts. I wrote down some some, uh, examples of this in Acts. But Paul goes on and comments on this in 2 Corinthians and says these these miracles and things are signs of a true apostle. And And he says to the Corinthians, hey, these signs were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So what's he saying? He's saying that these things authenticated us as real apostles with a real message and having real authority from Christ um, in your lives. So again, just pointing that out, uh, miracles continue to authenticate the apostles and the gospel message as it spreads. And then miracles aren't necessarily limited to the apostles. It's important we point that out. Because sometimes it gets thrown around in cessationist circles that it's just the apostles doing these things. But it's not, actually. I think it's bound up with the apostolic circle, if you want to call it that, but there are other men that are doing these things. Stephen in Acts 6-8, who's one of the seven that are appointed in Acts 6. Philip as well in Acts 8-6. And then later, Barnabas is alongside Paul, and he's doing these things, these signs and wonders with Paul. So it's evident that a few others outside of the apostles are able to regularly perform the miraculous. And then if we add in the 72 back from the Gospels, right, you see there's even a wider group. So there are a few more, and they were closely associated with the 12. And in every recorded case, the miracles were connected to the message. Okay? The miracles were connected to the message. They functioned to authenticate the message and to draw attention to the message. You can look up those references later, and you'll see that that's exactly what's going on. Now, last thing we'll say here, we'll just, we'll just glance at, is that miracles will even characterize the Antichrist. Um, Paul picks up on this in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, and it's just continuing to, to advance that strand of the theme that we've seen. Here's what he writes. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing at the appearance of his, of his coming. That's how we know that it's a final individual at the end of this age. Because Christ is going to return. He's going to kill this guy. And the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Right? So he's picking that up from Jesus and his teaching. Right? We saw that. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So my point here is just to show you that, that these things will characterize this, this age of the Messiah, and in, and in particular, they're going to they're gonna ramp up at the very end with these all-power and false signs and wonders. Um, if you can write down Revelation 13, Revelation 16, Revelation 19, I think they're all kind of, those texts are commenting on what we're seeing here. It appears that he's even going to have a mortal wound of some kind and be, and be kind of come back from the dead, so to speak, um, from some of those things. So, don't need to get into all that right now. Just want to point that out. All right, number four, next question. Should we expect them as the norm after the age of the apostles? So, we, should we expect healings and miracles to keep happening like we saw in the book of Acts with that kind of power and regularity? Um, I think no. And here are my reasons. 
the overwhelming purpose, like we've seen, of these gifts is to authenticate the message and to authenticate Jesus before him. And even in the Old Testament, it was to authenticate Moses and the Exodus, this new work that God was doing. So the overwhelming purpose of these things are not to bring in the new creation now. Although that was, that's, that's a, a compassion of Jesus. It filled him with compassion. I'm sure Paul and the apostles are filled with compassion on these people. They're afflicted by the curses. But the point is that the new creation's begun to break in, but it's not here in its fullness. So these gifts were given on the main to authenticate the apostles as his agents, to authenticate the gospel message as the church's foundation was being laid. You can jot down Hebrews 2.4 as an additional reference to throw in the till here. So that much seems crystal clear to me based on the data that we've surveyed. Now, that does not mean that all these gifts, um, or that, that, that's, that's all these gifts function for. Okay, so we could say that's the clear, far and away, the main purpose, but is that all that they do? Hypothetically, you could argue that God also gave the healing and miracles as a gift to edify his church by helping her overcome sicknesses and diseases during these last days or to set up some ongoing healing ministry of some kind. You could argue that based on the fact that Paul calls them gifts in 2 Corinthians 12. But I'm pointing out that the overwhelming focus of the New Testament outside of 1 Corinthians 12 is that these gifts function to authenticate the apostles and those close to them and the message that they preached. They, func- they functioned as a sign. Now, beyond this, let's talk about whether or not Paul and the other apostles envisioned some kind of other purpose, like a regular healing ministry, as normative in the church age. I highly doubt that they thought this way. The evidence seems to go the opposite direction. I think everyone would agree that Paul had the gift of healing. Is that fair? I think we could agree that Paul was able to work miracles. Uh, Luke says in Luke 9, in Acts 19 that they were extraordinary miracles. Again, uh, the most miraculous of the miraculous. But at least in one instance, he left a co-worker sick. He left a co-worker sick, and he tells us about this at the end of his letter, his second letter to Timothy, toward the end of his ministry. He says, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Now notice this, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Paul left him. He left him sick. It's super interesting that if Paul expected there to be some type of ongoing healing ministry in the church, and that he himself had like the greatest apportionment of the gift of healing, probably known to, known to man, uh, aside from Christ, that he would heal this guy, right? He's a co-worker. Paul loved his co-workers. He hated seeing them sick. He wouldn't abandon a, a comrade in the ministry and go on to let him recover if he had the ability to heal him. Beyond that, it's also interesting how Paul counsels Timothy about his stomach pain, another co-worker. He doesn't tell Timothy to find someone with the gift of healing or a miracle worker in the congregation. Instead, he tells Timothy to take medicine. He says, 1 Timothy 5, 23, No longer drink only water, 
which was full of bacteria and all kinds of things in the first century. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Wine was able is much more easily digested, uh, helped kill a lot of that bad stuff, and would was used medicinally in the first century. So notice also that this sickness appears to have characterized poor poor young Timothy. He had frequent ailments. In other words, Timothy was sickly. Right? He was a sickly little guy. And Paul loved him dearly. He would have no doubt loved to have relieved his protege from his ailments. It's odd that he didn't at some point in their travels together relieve him of this with his gift of healing. And with such an evident gift of healing. Now, add to this that the overwhelming, and I mean overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament on, is on trials in the life of the church. The church age is characterized by trials, by suffering, difficulties, which will include physical sickness. These trials serve a strategic purpose in the life of the church. It's clear that although the new creation has dawned in Christ, it's not here in its fullness, not yet. That awaits the coming of the king, the return of the king. This is an age of triumph through suffering in the way of our Messiah. Suffering, including the sufferings of sickness, disease, and death, are to be part of the Christian's experience in these last days. We're called to expect suffering and even to rejoice because of all of that God's doing in it. And it's very clear that even Paul himself had a physical ailment. He had an ailment that he wanted to be healed from, no doubt. He prayed to God three times that God would take it away from him. And it's almost certainly a physical issue. It may have had to do with his eyesight. But instead, God didn't heal him. He wanted him to be humble and dependent and to make his power known through Paul's physical infirmity. 2 Corinthians 12. And finally, when, when James, the brother of the Lord, directly addresses sickness in the church... He doesn't tell them to find a guy with the gift of healing or a miracle worker. Instead, he tells the sick guy to call the elders and have the elders pray over him and anoint him with oil. He says, is anyone among you sick? That's a great, it's a slam dunk, okay? It's a slam dunk if, we're, if, we're, if, we, if the gift of healing is, is there. Let him call for the elders, the leaders of the church. And let them pray. Right? Anoint with oil and pray. Now again, you can debate the oil. What is that about? And what does that mean? But the point, my point is that he's calling for elders, not the, not the faith healers, not the miracle workers. The leadership of the church, let them pray. It's a tough passage, but at a minimum, if James thought the gift of healing was a normal thing, then he wouldn't be saying to call the elders for prayer. He would be saying to get the guy with the gift of healing there and let him exercise his gift for the edification of the body. Now, that raises our final question. Are we saying that God doesn't heal today or work miracles today? Does that mean that God doesn't heal? Well, of course not. Okay? No cessationist says that God doesn't heal people. That would fly in the face of what we just saw with James. Right? 
It says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The text in James we just read deals with this very issue. God clearly answers our prayers, and sometimes it's to grant the healing that we request. So we've been in Philippians. So remember Paphroditus, he got really sick. And apparently God heard Paul's prayers and the the other prayers for this friend, and God showed mercy on Epaphroditus and raised him up. Now we're not sure whether he got better over time or if he was instantly healed through Paul's prayer, but it does seem that there was a time when Paul wasn't sure if his friend was going to make it or not. Very different if Paul's saying, like, well, I've got the gift of healing, so I can guarantee that he's going to make it. He wasn't sure if he was going to make it or not. He was worried that he might have to face sorrow upon sorrow, he said, because of the prospect of losing Epaphroditus. That was a very real prospect for Paul. But Paul prayed for him, and the others obviously prayed for him, and God had mercy. God raised him up. Paul clearly prayed for himself that that God would take away his physical infirmity, his thorn in the flesh. And this shows, even though God said no, it still shows that Paul expected God to consider his request and that God might actually grant it, or else he wouldn't have prayed. So it's, it's a normal and good desire that we have to live in good health. And that when, when we're sick, it's good to hope and pray to recover quickly. Look at this. Another apostle. Apostle John, over in 3 John, prays for his friend Gaius like this. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Good health. Nothing unspiritual about that. Okay, It's not wrong to pray for Anastasia's big toe. In the prayer requests, sometimes that gets disparaged. God is the God of everything, including raising up the sick. Clearly, then, the Apostle John has a category for good health. He prays for it for his friend as an aspect of love for him. So let's put all this together. What, what am I arguing? And we'll be done. Okay, I'm arguing that the gifts, the gifts, gifts, underline that, the gifts of healing and miracles have ceased but not the healing or miracles themselves. What's the difference? We're talking about regularity. Okay, God may choose to heal in His prerogative through the prayers of His people, and in, like we saw in James in particular, the prayers of the elders. But I'm arguing that the gifts of healing and miracles are not normative for the church, but that we should not be afraid or hesitant to ask the Lord to heal or to work powerfully when we're faced with sickness or even impossible situations. We've seen God here at TBC, we've seen God completely take away cancer and other forms of sickness in response to prayer. It's not the norm, but God does still act in response to our prayers. As we pray, our heart cry should be, not my will but yours be done, as we ask for God to do things in Christ's name. We've got to remember that God has higher and more glorious purposes for us, purposes that often include suffering and sickness, and sometimes even untimely death. But whatever His purposes are, they are always good, they are always best, and even our present sufferings are preparing us for that new creation where all this is going to be taken away with the return of Christ, and they're preparing us for that eternal weight of glory that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. All right, so... That's Crash Course, the gift of healing to miracles. Hope that's helpful. Um, I think it's compelling. And um, happy to talk about it. Happy to send you my notes or direct you to further resources. All right? You're dismissed.